Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Dominic Parker, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural and Applied Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His recent research focuses on how property rights and governance influence the ways society benefit from their natural resource endowments. Dominic, thanks so much for joining us at the Governance Podcast. Thank you, Irene. It's great to be here. So I want to talk about your work on the economics of natural resource use. Um, You know, in principles of economics classes, we're often taught that the market produces private goods, and the government steps in to produce public goods. And obviously, this is very relevant to natural resources and the environment. These are things that are very hard to own. Um, So more recently, with the insights of the Bloomington School, led by Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom, the discourse within the economics profession has changed and has begun to accommodate a more diverse set of institutions that can help us maintain the global commons. So... Which kinds of governance arrangements have you found to be the most effective uh, for our ability to use natural resources? Is it the state? Is it the market? Or is it something in between? I think, Irina, it's a great question. And I think what Ronald Coase told us about this particular question, and then I think uh, Eleanor Ostrom said more about it, is we need to think about comparative institutional analysis. We need to think about, on the ground, the particulars of the governance structure and the particulars of the natural resource in question. And often, it's not an all-or-nothing kind of answer to that question. There's cases where private provision can outperform state provision, and there's cases where state provision might have a comparative advantage uh, in providing certain uh, uh, conservation outcomes from natural resources compared to the uh, compared to the private sector. So, which ones have you found uh, in your personal research? Which kinds of governance arrangements work best in in specific cases? Yeah, well, there's uh, lots of natural resource uses and natural resources that I've studied. I've studied wind. I've studied oil and gas. I've studied fisheries, uh, ocean fisheries. Uh, wildlife conservation, and you see different kinds of governance structures for these different natural resources all across the world. Uh, One example is wildlife conservation. Uh, In the United States, wildlife has historically and still is been managed um, by state wildlife agencies, specialized agencies that are charged with trying to control populations, uh, managing hunting and fishing effort. Whereas in other countries, in in Britain, for example, there's a stronger history of private ownership and private control of wildlife. And so there's questions that this observation raises. One is, why are there the differences across countries? And second, which is more effective? And the answer to those questions, you might imagine, are intertwined and interconnected. Um, One possible reason for the differences has to do with land ownership and trespass rules. So in in the United States, when the frontier was settled, uh, the land was homesteaded into small private parcels interspersed with publicly owned land, open access land, 
and wildlife populations, certainly in the 19th century, we hear a lot about bison and the dramatic depletion of that resource from 10 million to 500 animals in a period of 10 to 20 years. Um, but we hear less about the depletion of all these other stocks of American wildlife, wild turkeys. Uh, white-tailed deer, believe it or not, had populations of some estimates had it at 34 million at the time of Christopher Columbus to less than 500,000 in the entire continental U.S. Uh, at, a, at the turn of the century, so around 1900. You have this massive depletion. You have um, aggressive uh, markets uh, by game hunting for wildlife. You have massive depletion, uncertainty about who owns wildlife, a lot of resistance from uh, uh, from well, from landowners and also from well, primarily from hunters. I'm sorry, the resistance is primarily from hunters to use the British system to employ it um, that that gave pretty strong rights of ownership to wildlife to landowners. So a, a lot of populist resistance to that approach, um, uh, and so in this period of uncertainty, finally. Finally, you get the evolution of a state wildlife trust, which gives the state clear, the states, the U.S. states, clear rights of control and management of wildlife. And after that, other things are happening, but after that, you do start to see um, a recovery of wildlife uh, species. Uh, and so you return to some of the abundance that we saw before state ownership, which was really a period of open access because the landowner regimes, these small private land holdings, made the transaction costs uh, of private management prohibitively costly. Add, the, add to that really weak trespass laws, laws that didn't give landowners really the right to keep hunters out. The odds were stacked against private uh, effective private management in that case. So compare that to at least what I understand the conditions to be in Britain um, before before colonial America and even during colonial America, where you had large um, estates, private estates, that could fully contain uh, the population range of certain wildlife species. In the U.S., you didn't have large private estates that could fully contain um, the, the population range of wildlife. So in Britain, one landowner could effectively manage the populations. They could set hunting rules um, and manage this renewable resource uh, in a way that benefited the landowner and, and also benefited the renewable resource, in this case, as the wildlife population. In the U.S., uh, as I said, that to do that kind of management, you would need widespread coordination uh, across hundreds of landowners and private contracting in that under those conditions, transaction costs were prohibitively high. So that's a detailed example of why different ownership structures, different governance structures for the same type of uh, resource, in this case wildlife, emerge and the, the system 
in Britain made sense given the land owning uh, land ownership conditions. It wouldn't have worked if it was simply transplanted to the U.S. And in fact, it wasn't working. Um, uh, and there's some other complications to that story, but that's that's an example of uh, the comparative institutional analysis that I think is important for understanding what kinds of governance structures work under what conditions. Interesting. So it looks like both the U.S. and the U.K. have uh, had this kind of private provision of um, wildlife management. But in the U.K., because there were large estates and there were relatively few of them managing, the transaction costs were not as high as perhaps in the U.S., where you have so many different actors that it becomes so unwieldy to for all of them to contract together to use but- the... I think that's the gist yeah. of the of the difference between the two two systems. Yeah. So is it a matter of scale uh, in terms of managing such vast uh, swaths of land for wildlife? Is it because that it's just such a big territory and it's too costly for so many actors to come together? Is the government always the preferred uh, source of governance in those situations? I think scale is critical. And returning to that comparison of Britain and the U.S., um, one dimension of scale that I didn't talk about is the habitat requirements for the different wildlife species in the two um, in the two countries. So, uh, in the U.S., uh, when settlers arrived, there were species like elk and uh, the American bison that either are migratory or nomadic and require large ranges um, uh, for grazing and for their habitat. And so the scale of those uh, wildlife species, the natural scale, is quite large, and it's larger than, say, the scale of rabbits, (laughs) um, which is a species that could be hunted elsewhere, um, but certainly has a much smaller uh, range And so the scale of the resource relative to the scale of private ownership um, is often critical. Uh, We think, you know, land historically, ownership of land under this ancient uh, common law doctrine is supposed to extend to the center of the earth and to the heavens and be attached to anything on the land or that interacts with it, so surface water, groundwater, uh, wildlife, oil and gas, the minerals below, the wind above. Um, and so often the scale of ownership, um, it mismatches, is ultimately much smaller, the scale of surface ownership, than the scale required for large-scale natural resource management. Um, and and that that's... That's quite common. So I think the scale is critical. Uh, and I can come back to, I think, some interesting examples of how that scale varies. But I wanted to address the second point of your question, which is, is it only scale? So, well, it's the scale of resource management relative to the scale of surface ownership can be really important. The other thing that can be important is the quality and structure of government. So... In the U.S., uh, you know, typically governance, I mean, it's imperfect. (laughs) Um, And you're talking about federal control and sometimes state control and sometimes local control. And 
there's wide variation in how well governments perform, how well they're, um, uh, how well they represent their constituents, how corrupt they are. Um, so obviously, a, a badly governed federal government uh, would do would have to be compared against you know the the imperfect gov uh, federal government management would have to be compared with imperfect private management with its challenges of overcoming transaction costs. And I think Coase taught us this. He emphasized this uh, when he emphasized comparative institutional analysis. Um, it, he did not use the phrase market failure, but he would say when private transaction costs are high, there's lots of individuals that would need to organize and contract with each other the market's going to deliver outcomes that are inferior to our blackboard analysis. Uh, but by the same token, um, Coase cautioned against assuming that governments are going to step in and perfectly solve the market imperfections. And he, he would say that, you know, we need to compare how a real government would behave uh, with its informational disadvantages, its incentives problems, et cetera, and, and then do the institutional analysis, in this case of natural resource governance, uh, comparing reality versus reality. <laughs> That's a really good point. Uh, I wonder how generalizable are your findings across different cases of natural resource use? So you, you found these interesting differences and nuances even between different kinds of private management of resources of wildlife in the U.S. and the U.K. Mm. What about uh, natural resources like gas and oil? Obviously a very contentious and political uh, object. Uh, how are those resources managed, uh, at least in the U.S.? Uh, what has your recent, recent mm. research said on this? So oil and gas is very interesting. Um, production in the U.S., um, well, let me, let me back up there. In the U.S., there's two, two kinds of technologies and two kinds of oil and gas resources. It tend, tend, the, the differences between the two are important. Um, there's conventional oil, which is um, like a pool of oil, uh, oversimplifying a little bit, but it's an underground reservoir. Um, and the technology for accessing it is to drill vertically into that pool and to suck the to suck the oil out to pump it out, um, and the new technology uh, gets and develops oil that's tightly trapped into shale rock, and it is accessed by fracturing the rock. So a well is drilled deep below the surface, a mile below the surface, for example, um, into shale. Uh, the shale is fractured under high pressure, and then the well is turned horizontally and driven for sometimes two, three miles horizontally. Um, and so oil from that shale is drained um, and pumped out. So that the, 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 this kind of fracturing is starting to dominate U.S. oil and gas production in recent years after a century of conventional oil and gas drilling. Um, so that's the technology. In terms of the ownership structure, the U.S. is exceptional in that, unlike almost every other country, 
ownership of the subsurface oil and gas is conveyed with the surface ownership. Um, in most other countries, the ownership of oil and gas is held by the government, even when the surface is privatized. So mm-hmm. oil and gas under beneath the ground in the U.S. is typically owned by the farmers that live above. And even if the parcels are small and not farmed, uh, the oil and gas is typically owned by the, by the landowner. Um, so you have these two really different systems of, of oil and gas ownership. And as a natural resource economist who studies governance and institutions, it raises the obvious, uh, well, I think the interesting question, which is two-part, why do we have those differences and which system works better? Uh, Which system generates more resource utilization? Which system generates more income for the people that um, have a claim to the oil and the gas, either through their governments or through private ownership? And what system is better for conservation if that's the desired outcome? Um, so those, the, the, that's the oil and gas is like wildlife in that it, uh, its governance is very different in different parts of the world. So you actually have a situation where uh, certain people on top of the land actually end up owning the oil and gas underneath it, and yeah. then they end up having to extract it, or they they govern that the use of that natural resource yeah. themselves versus the government. So you get to see the actual differences between how that resource is used under different governance arrangements. That's right. In the in the U, in the U.S., um, there are some cases due mainly to accidents of history, where sometimes um, you have oil and gas deposits, many that were unknown when the surface was subdivided, um, that sit where, where government ownership is kind of side by side with private ownership. And you have some opportunities to compare the performance of those two governance regimes. Sometimes you can uh, hold constant the, the quality of the resources, the same resources just govern differently uh, in nearby locations in terms of government versus private ownership. And so that's, that's what one of uh, my recent research papers with Brian Leonard, another uh, economist and co-author at Arizona State University, um, we are studying uh, the extraction of oil and gas through this fracking technology um, under government versus private ownership. Um, and, and so what's interesting about that, and I'll make the contrast to conventional oil because it's important for if we want to think of the resource as a common pool oil reserve or the shale rock, um, Brian and I uh, are arguing it's more like an anti-commons kind of resource. What's an anti-commons? So an anti-commons is, this is a... a a term that was coined um, by Michael Heller in some of his research on the tragedy of the anti-commons. Michael Heller is a law professor at Columbia University in New York, and he contrasted back in a lengthy law article in the late 90s um, the problem of commons versus the problem of anti-commons. So the commons problem is one political scientists and environmental scientists and economists are quite familiar with. 
Um, in the context of a natural resource, a common property resource is one where there's many people who hold rights to use the resource and few, if any, hold rights to exclude from the resource. So you have an overabundance of use rights relative to exclusion rights. The predicted outcome is overuse. And so if we think about this oil, conventional oil and gas example, if a surface is privatized into 40-acre farm parcels, for example, and the conventional oil reserve is much larger, let's just say a 1,000 acres in area, uh, then anyone who owns the land in the U.S. also owns a right to access the oil. And so the common property problem that would be predicted under these circumstances is each owner drills a vertical well into the pool and sucks as much of the oil out as they can before their neighbors can. And so you have this inefficient race to capture the common pool resource. We see it in fisheries, we see it in groundwater, uh, and, and we see it in conventional oil. Um, and in fact, in the U.S. Uh, in the early 20th century, uh, lots of potential revenue from conventional oil re reserves was wasted because of this race. You have overcapitalization, too many oil wells, sucking the oil too fast, and lots of the reserve becomes unrecovered and will never be recovered because the pressure for pumping was not optimized because of this race. Um, so that's the kind of uh, overuse that's predicted, inefficient overuse um, that's been coined the tragedy of the commons. Um, so so one way to solve that problem, there's other ways, but one way to solve that would be to grant ownership of the reserve to the government. Then you create a clear exclusion right to the resource at the scale of the resource. And if the government's well-managed, you can imagine that uh, you could get more oil from the same reserve because you've solved this overuse, uh, too many use rights problem. So, so, so let me talk about uh, shale oil now. It's this rock um, that traps the oil. So now you have, we have to think about the optimal, technologically optimal scale of oil recovery. So you have sort of little amounts of oil that's trapped per acre of rock. So as it turns out, given current technologies, uh, these oil drilling sites have to be two to three miles horizontally to be profitable. Really large fixed cost of drilling the vertical part of a well, and then a small marginal cost of extending into space another quarter of a mile, etc. And so it turns out that the engineering op the the optimal scale from the engineering perspective are these long rather skinny wells so in the u.s the shale ownership is attached to the surface ownership so if you need to extend say a one by two mile rectangle for uh, uh 
and that would be 1,280 acres, um, you need to write contracts with the owners of the shale. And if it's 40-acre parcels, you would have many, you know, many 1,280 acres divided by 40 uh, landowners to contract with if you're an oil developer that's trying to get to the subsurface. So now we have this potential anti-commons problem because if any of those owners of the shale don't want to consent to the project or they want to charge a high price for the oil developer to access their piece of the shale, then it may be infeasible and unprofitable for the development project to happen. And, and so this is a potential tragedy of the anti-commons where everyone who owns a piece of the shale could potentially be better off uh, economically. Um, they could be better off if the development project happened but because it's costly to coordinate with each other, um, they may not negotiate the right royalty rates or the right price, if you will, um, in the leasing contracts with the oil developer. In aggregate, the oil developer will say, well, these terms are not favorable and the project doesn't go through, it doesn't happen. And this would be a tragedy if... In fact, everyone could be made better off if the project happened, but it didn't because of coordination, transaction cost kinds of problems. So you end up underusing the resource instead of overusing it. Exactly. So whereas conventional oil can be used too quickly and overused, the shale oil could be used too slowly or underused, and that would be the symmetric tragedy for anti-commons. One fascinating part in your conclusion in that paper was that, well, you say here that government ownership may be the appropriate regime in most countries in spite of the corruption, bureaucratic red tape, and mismanagement that often accompany governmental control. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, how did you determine the benefits uh, of governmental ownership as opposed to their costs in this mm -hmm. situation? Mm -hmm. um, so, so, we use uh, something like we use a natural experiment, um, and it's a study of a major um, shale oil field uh, in the U.S. It's in the state of North Dakota. It's the Bakken oil field, which is one of the world's most valuable. It's richly endowed with oil, and there's been or there was an oil boom. Um, on it from approximately 2005 to 2015, accounting for much of the U.S.'s uh, domestic oil production. Over the Bakken lies the Fort Berthold American Indian Reservation. And the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, like many U.S. reservations, has very low per capita income, high rates of poverty, and also like many American Indian reservations, it contains some valuable natural resources um, uh, that that have, at least to the outsider, appear to have been under underutilized and underexploited. And so, one question is why. And at least with respect to shale oil gas, um, we think part of the answer is that land ownership 
on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation is highly fragmented. And it's highly fragmented due to top-down U.S. Uh, privatization programs on Indian reservations during the late 1900s and the early 20th centuries that subdivided, typically against the wishes of the tribe, um, communal tribal land and allocated it in small individual parcels to, to individuals or families. But before the land was fully privatized, uh, some of the land, um, much of the land, um, the privatization process stopped, I'm sorry. Um, it stopped in 1934 due to a pushback on the policy. And that land that wasn't privatized is now um, now owned in common, essentially, uh, by all the heirs of the original Alati. So this is a little nuanced and complicated, so I'll just try to explain it one more time. Um, the end result is some of these parcels, 40-acre, 80-acre, 160-acre parcels, have sometimes 50, 75, 100 owners today because every heir of the original Alati has an equal share of ownership uh, interests in the land. And so next to some of this fragmented, fractionated land is regular uh, privately owned land with typically one owner, one parcel. And next to it is um, land that's owned by the tribal government uh, on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. Some of that land the tribal government owned is scattered in little um, small parcels over the reservation, and some of it is contiguous. And so what we're able to do uh, on, on the reservation, but also next to the reservation, is we're able to look at how oil drilling revenue and production commenced during this boom on the Bakken oil field and attribute those differences um, to ownership differences because the surface ownership on this reservation um, was allocated, divided for reasons that have nothing to do with shale oil. I mean, the, the, the land tenure history developed and concluded long before even the discovery, uh, well, most of it before the discovery of oil and certainly before fracking technologies existed. So, so, so to back up to your question, so we make these, we make these comparisons and what we find is, um, as land becomes more fragmented or fractionated, either because parcels are small or because they're held in this airship ownership structure with multiple owners per parcel, um, we find that, in general, the, the government parcels produce less revenue and have lower production unless you start to compare them to highly fragmented parts of the Indian Reservation. And at some point, if fractionation and fragmentation become high enough, uh, the tribal government's production uh, is, is higher and we, we estimate these thresholds for a typical private parcel. If the average size of a parcel is five acres or below, you get more production from government ownership. If the average uh, size of a 
fractionated parcels less than 63 acres, you get more production from the government. So this is this coast kind of comparative institutional analysis. And, and then, Irina, on your, on your question about how this might extend to other places where governance varies, we point out that 85% of the world's farms are smaller than five acres. Um, and lots of the world's uh, farms have, have multiple owners. There's this uh, airship co-ownership arrangement exists in many parts of the world. And so if you took this U.S. system and you applied it to countries where countries in Eastern Europe, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, to Haiti, other countries in, in, in Central America, and you, 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 you give, you apply this U.S. system of ownership that goes to the center of the earth from the surface, what we're pointing out is there could be very high transaction costs of, of using subsurface resources. And maybe because of that, even in those countries, despite the limitations of government ownership, despite corruption, bureaucratic red tape, uh, inefficiency, risk of expropriation, all these problems that governments grapple with when they're trying to attract investment in natural resources, in spite of those problems, government ownership might be a sensible um, uh, management regime uh, given the fragmentation small parcel sizes that are out there. Let's take the example of a dictatorship mm -hmm. where there's mm -hmm. absolutely no institutional diversity mm -hmm. in resource mm -hmm. ownership at all, and the governments don't really share the, the rents back with the population mm -hmm. from the resources that yeah, they extract, yeah, right? right. Um, do the benefits of govern government ownership still outweigh the cost, or, or do we actually benefit from having institutional diversity in principle? Yeah. Does institutional diversity actually offer us a way of of sort of coming up with solutions and experimenting and finding out what yeah. works? Yeah, the, the answer is yes and yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, we were coming back to, to some of the richness of the real-world institutional arrangements. Um, I should clarify one thing, which is um, in my comments here and even in the research papers that I'm referring to, we are talking about we're comparing the, the size of the economic pie or the economic rents and aggregate that seem to be accrued from these different government structures. And we are not talking about how under government ownership, how those rents do or do not get distributed to the everyday civilians. So even in the context of the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, um, we have estimates of how tribal government uh, ownership outperformed um, fragmented private ownership in terms of aggregate revenue and income from oil production, we are not observing how those, um, how that revenue gets distributed back to the citizens. And that's a separate mm -hmm. question and a critical question of distribution. Um, and so in our framing, a dictator could actually do quite well. And in fact, in some Middle Eastern countries, we do see a Middle Eastern countries uh, can be very good at extracting 
uh, using the resource effectively, certainly relative to private fragmented ownership. But some countries do a very poor job of distributing uh, resource rents to civilians. And that probably makes, or that surely makes, um, long-run resource production unstable if you're not distributing it to the civilians. And so a critical component of this is what ownership structure um, not, not only maximizes resource rents in aggregate, but actually, you know, rents to the typical civilian. Mm. And, and so private ownership is going to have a strong advantage over government ownership um, once we think about sort of what actually makes it down to the what, what, what actually um, becomes income for, mm-hmm. for civilians. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a critical distinction. In terms of institutional arrangements, I, there's lots of uh, arrangements in between pure government ownership of natural resources and pure private unregulated ownership of natural resources and it's almost certainly always going to be the case that some hybrid between those two extremes is going to be optimal for a particular uh, for a particular place or over a particular time. In the U.S., um, the conventional oil um, common property race to extract the oil was addressed not by government ownership, by for, but by forced oil field unit, unitization. So this, this required, it's somewhat like eminent domain, it's somewhat like forced pooling, where it requires, uh, with more of a heavy hand, uh, the, the cooperation or coordination among landowners to create an oil field unit. Then the oil field is extracted as one unit and the payments are distributed to the to the landowners. So this is a way to solve the problem that involved some government action, but well short of government mm-hmm. owning the resource. Sure. I want to switch gears a little bit to discuss the implications of your research for the way that we respond to climate change. Mm. So the latest UN report on this has prompted some fairly alarming language in policy spheres. In the UK, one minister said that reducing emissions sufficiently will require answers that the market unfettered will not deliver. Mm. The language of action coming from the scientific and policy communities in response to climate change tends to be very anti-market. Does this conversation require more nuance, or can we safely assume that government-provided environmental regulation is the only way we can tackle the scale of the problem? Yeah, yeah. Um, So clarification here is that this is outside the scope of the research papers that I have written, so I'm of course, very interested in the governance problems related to dealing with climate change, but it isn't a topic that I've written directly about or have specific expertise on. But if you allow me to speculate and draw some um, draw some inferences from the research that I have done um, in in a paper the the paper about um, oil and gas use from fracking. Uh, 
Brian Leonard and I point out that uh, um, that this anti-commons coast kind of bargaining problem doesn't only preclude um, traditional resource commodity production, it also can preclude conservation. And, um, and it can preclude conservation because if the resource, resource ownership is highly fragmented, it can be just as difficult to coordinate and to contract for use as it can be to coordinate and contract for non-use. Mm. And in fact, we saw that in the, in the um, history of, uh, of the U.S. with respect to wildlife populations plummeting. The kind of contracting problem uh, and the coordination problem that was at work um, in that case was, uh, was that landowners were trying to make agreements to not shoot the wildlife. Mm. And, and so that was basically a contract to non-use to conserve and, and that was challenged by high transaction costs. Now, these transaction costs, um, in some cases, are exasperated, not reduced by government actions. And there are often cases where governments could, could help lower the transaction costs and better allow for private solutions. Um, mm-hmm. I'll come back to climate change in a minute, but... Um, in the U.S., there's historically been um, uh, rules about ownership of water that are use it or lose it. And so uh, you have to use the water to claim an ownership right. Moreover, the state uh, the state has defined what beneficial use is. And so the beneficial use has to be for the production of agricultural crops. And under that system water becomes like common property. There's an incentive to use it or lose it and very little incentive to conserve it. So what some states have done in response to advocacy by private conservation groups that wanted more water in streams and lakes um, is, is lobby the state to create a broader definition of property rights to water and include in it the non-use right. Mm. And so once private control is effectively stronger, not weaker, it's a case where the government has intervened to give strength to private property rights, Mm. then conservation groups had a clear owner to negotiate with Mm. um, to keep water in stream. And and so you have this clear right of non-use and conservation actually improved in, in lots of places um, because, uh, because of private ownership. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that has me wondering how the state can either help or frustrate private attempts to, um, to, deal with, to deal with climate change. I mean, in the context of oil and gas, if the ownership rights are strong enough, as they are in the U.S., you can imagine, um, or coal, uh, if the ownership rights to coal are strong enough um, and they're given to private parties, you can imagine conservation groups uh, contracting with those private parties to, um, to not use the coal. Mm-hmm. Coal deposits in some places are quite cheap um, if, if there was contracting for coal non-use, that would be a, a, 
a private uh, attempt to reduce at least the flow of emissions. Now, for that to work, somebody has to have clear ownership of the carbon emitting resource or the carbon storing resource. Uh, and if it's not a private party, it may, it, it may be a government agency. And then the question is, uh, could a conservation group credibly contract with the government to not burn their coal Right. Or their oil and gas, and uh, that is highly dubious proposition in in some in some places. And so, mm. um, I can certainly envision more of a role for private contracting in climate change abatement. Um, and I think that that would be a good area for more research on comparative institutional analysis. Mm. It's kind of an interesting way of tackling climate change, even if national level. Uh, government institutions aren't willing to put in regulations to tackle environmental problems, uh, such as, you know, the Trump administration. So it looks like, actually, even in the face of national uh, problems with policymaking, people can privately contract together to actually well, that, reduce emissions themselves. I, I think I think that's very interesting. I mean, the the, you know, Private ownership is not a panacea. It's not a, a a solution to every problem we face. But one one dimension of it that's very attractive is it's less susceptible to political swings. It's less susceptible to um, who's in in the U.S., who's in the executive office, uh, and at least if you know constitutional property rights continue to be respected, uh, you can do good environmental conservation uh, independently of, of who is who the politicians are. Mm-hmm. So, so it can be a more sustainable mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. To, uh, to long-term sustainable conservation. I agree. Mm. What do you think is the legacy of the Ostroms in policy and in academia? We often say that Eleanor Ostrom created a paradigm shift in the way we think about markets and states as providers of governance. Now there's this whole mid-range mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. possibilities. Do you think that her work was as revolutionary as, as it's often made out to be? I think, I think Eleanor Ostrom's work, and I'm more familiar with Eleanor's work than with Vincent's, um, I think that it's tempting to dismiss it and to dismiss some of her conclusions as obvious that they're, you know, in the real world, uh, we need not have open access or state ownership um, in the real world. There's lots of regimes that are in between that work well. Uh, Another point she made is that common property arrangements can work really well and sometimes outperform individual ownership arrangements. I think it's it's like like lots of brilliant work <laughs> that's out there. Uh, the conclusions seem straightforward and obvious once we uh, think about them for a minute and digest them. But then you you look at the literature in economics and political science and environmental science and just see how prevalent those insights of Ostrom's how, how how common it is for those insights to be overlooked 
dismissed, not investigated. And you, and you can see that, you know, we all could uh, benefit from, you know, reminding ourselves of Ostrom's work and our conclusions more frequently than we do. And it's, it's not just in the academic literature, it's in the policy sphere as well, where um, politicians often overlook the kind of rich, bottom-up arrangements that, uh, that people make that, that can sometimes be, you know, the best they can do given the constraints they face. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dominic. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks, Irina. My pleasure. To all our listeners, you can find more podcasts, blogs, and live events on the cutting edge debates and governance by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is CSGSKCL. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.